welcome to Sounds Heal Podcast. I am your host, Natalie Brown, and thank you so much for joining me as we continue to explore the fields of sound healing, sound therapy, and generally the use of sound for health and wellness. And this is our last episode of 2021. Thank you so much for your support this year and over the past three years. Yes, it's been three years of doing this podcast and what a wonderful archive of conversations of people in the sound field. Uh, Just looking back, thinking of all the different perspectives, um, the journeys, the stories, the experiences people have shared. I'm just so grateful for my own learning and curiosity being able to enjoy uh, these people and the interviews, but also thank you so much for listening, for your support and encouragement of this podcast, really helping lift up the sound healing field. And also, you know, thank you so much for listening because I I did receive uh, the notice that this podcast, Sounds Heal Podcast, is number two in the world in the sound therapy and music therapy podcast um, arena, genre. So that comes from Feedspot and they are the most comprehensive kind of collector of statistics when it comes to podcasts. So wow, what an honor. And that's obviously through your support and listening. And uh, thank you so much for supporting uh, this, this archive of work and helping support the sound healing field. Also, thank you so much to the Ohm Shop and Spa. You know, it's been a couple years now that they've been sponsoring this podcast and what a wonderful collaboration. And they too are really trying to help people in this profession, um, you know, find instruments, really find some vibrational tools to help uh, lift others' spirits and, It's just been a wonderful collaboration. So thank you so much to the Ohm Shop and Spa for their support as well. Today we have Peter Blum on the podcast and what a fascinating exploration uh, and life uh, Peter has. Uh, We start by learning, you know, really about his background, his story, his hunger for learning and exploration, you know, initially when it comes to music and growing up in New York and then Woodstock, um, really kind of exploring different spiritual practices. And then his main profession is hypnosis. Um, And so now this wonderful combination that he has of hypnosis work, trance work, sound work, and shamanic practices as well. So really fascinating and inspiring um, conversation with Peter that just sparks your interest to just be hungry for, you know, and and curious and just always wanting to learn um, and always having a patience and commitment when it comes to uh, these type of practices and this type of work. So please enjoy this podcast with Peter Blum. Ah, Got it. All right. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Peter. It's wonderful to be able to actually speak with you. I, I've you know, seen you online and various Facebook groups uh, for years now, but I'm so glad that we're connecting here and able to have this conversation. So thanks for doing this with me. Uh, it's my pleasure, and I'm very honored to be in such illustrious company. Oh, yes. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yes. And 
Um, why don't you know, it's been really fun to kind of review your work, especially through your, your website, which has so much information, just to see how, you know, your individual path, your backstory has all led you to this combination of using hypnosis, uh, sound practices, as well as spiritual and shamanic practices. So mm -hmm. I think what's so wonderful about these conversations within this podcast is, you know, there is something ind individual about everyone and everything in your path led you to, to what you do now. So I'm curious about your background and we could start with maybe your musical influences when you were younger. All right. Um, I consider myself very fortunate. I've noticed this, by the way, I also want to, uh, you know, thank you for doing this. This is a tremendous service and you're building an archive like a, of, of, um, re of resources that those of us in the sound healing community can refer to and know more about who's doing what. And uh, as I've been preparing and watching this, I've, I've noticed a number of people talking about early influences very early on. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be uh, to incarnate into a, a family that appreciated music and there was a piano in the house and my my dad was an uh, aspiring opera singer and uh, so um, um, and my mom also was a, an artist a professional watercolor artist so there was a great appreciation for the arts it was part of my daily life growing up that my dad was performing in various semi-professional opera uh, companies. Um, opera, as you may know, is there's very little top. There's only a few and he wasn't quite there, but almost. So he aspired to do that. And he also sang because he just loved voice. And he sang uh, in both um, temple and church choirs. It, it wasn't about the religion. It was about singing. And he loved doing that. And that was a sort of a second source of income for his day job. And uh, when we would go on uh, car trips, my sister who's seven years younger than I and my parents and I, we would sing in the car, the whole family. And I innocently thought, oh, this is what every family does. But sadly, no. And um, so music was all around and uh, I remember right around, uh, they tr I tried piano lessons that didn't take, but uh, I listened to all kinds of music. And uh, I, I remember there was a radio station in New York City, uh, WQXR, which was the radio station of the New York Times. And they played primarily classical music, which was on in my house a lot. That's, you know, I discovered jazz and folk through my friends and who, who were pursuing their own interests. And I remember getting a guitar at around the age of 12. And um, also there was a radio station in New York City uh, that I would listen to, which played um, rock and roll. And, and uh, but the, the guy, the DJ, Murray the K had gotten a hold of uh, Baba Ola Tunji's Drums of Passion which came out in like 1958 or 59. And he would play little excerpts from that in between. And that sound, I was like, what is that sound? 
And the other thing that was that QXR had a little diversity in their programming in that uh, every Sunday afternoon they would have an hour or two. And now I want to put this in a time frame. This is 57, 59. I was born in 1947. So I was about 10 or 12. They would have an hour or two of North Indian classical music, which was nobody knew what that was. But I would listen to these sounds. They were unlike anything else around. And yet they were so familiar. And I don't know if it was a past life or a precog, but they just drew me. And they would also do um, modern music, like the music of um, uh, John Cage and, and Schoenberg. And, um, um, you know, you one of the people you interviewed was John Beaulieu who's a friend of mine and lives close by and we've talked together a few times and he's a fun guy and John moved to New York from wherever he was in the Midlands to study with Xenakis, who was a very avant-garde composer. So these sounds, music concrete, it was called, you know, and, and found music and sounds were also fascinating to me. So I had this real interesting, you know, mix of all sorts of stuff uh, listen to, I used to listen to, there was a jazz um, DJ in New York who had a late night show and I would take my transistor radio because I was supposed to be asleep and I would take it in bed and listen under the covers to Symphony Sid playing, you know, Mongo Santa Maria and Dave Brubeck and John Coltrane. And so there was that coming in too. Um, and then came the 60s. <laughs> And I am a child of the 60s. I came of age in that time, and there was sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and I participated in all of them. And, uh, I, I, you know, it was uh, a time of tremendous exploration, exploring consciousness, um, finding out about yoga and meditation in the 60s. And I would tell people, I'm doing yoga. And they would say, isn't that that culture dairy product you buy at the health food store, you know, no, that's yogurt. This is yoga. So I found Hatha yoga. And then um, um, I went to a concert, uh, somebody gifted me with tickets to a, a concert. Uh, I second row at um, uh, Philharmonic Hall, or Lincoln Center in New York City uh, in 1968, I believe it was. Uh, Ravi Shankar. This was before, before, uh, or be I think it was, yeah, definitely before Woodstock and before the big festival he played in California, the Monterey Pop. But I was wanted to hear live Indian music, and I went, and I I was in an uh, altered state of consciousness before going. I mean, you know, let's you know full disclosure. But I sat there and I saw colors coming off of the strings as he was playing, you know, which is a, a common side uh, effect of some of the psychoactive substances is you get synesthesia. You hear, uh, you, you know, you, you hear purple, <laughs> or, right? Uh, so, um, by the way, one of the people I hung out with in high school was somebody that we all thought was very gifted and we'd go on to have a great career and she was writing songs even then that was Laura Nairo 
you know, yeah, Laura Nairo, who Miles Davis was a big fan of. And, you know, she would give uh, the, when she would go into this recording studio, she would give them instructions, not uh, musical, but she would say, I would like, like a, you know, a, a, a magenta feel here. You know, so there's that kind of crossover that we, we code things in terms of how they feel, how they look. A sound has a maybe a smell to it as well, um, it enriches it. So anyway, that was that was very transformative that experience. And I later, um, so then I, I moved from New York City, where I where I was born and spent my formative years. And in 1969, at the age of 22, I moved to Woodstock, New York which is where I've been more or less living ever since. And it is a hotbed. Uh, it's, it's like a giant Petri dish of, of musician, artists and musicians. And, um, you know, Pat Metheny and Jack DeJanet, great jazz players live, have lived here, John Sebastian and, uh, and Paul Butterfield and his whole band. And I was an aspiring blues harmonica player at that time as well. And, so these were my heroes and Bob Dylan had lived here and had just left right before I got here. So uh, I felt like I was in a right place. And um, I started, somebody handed me a book and it was the, uh, the Sufi message of Hasrat and Aya Khan, volume two, the mysticism of sound and breath and music. And I remember, I mean, as clearly as if it were that day, opening it and, and reading it, and it was like the letters were fiery letters. They were coming off the page at me. I'd never encountered anyone speaking about my experiences with sound in a, in a kind of mystical setting. And it gave, it, a, it gave me a framework to pursue this um, not, I, I always knew that sound and music for me were a lot more than entertainment. They were, they touched me deeply. I mean, I would hear um, Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring would come on WQXR and I'd be trans, transfigured or, or Carmina Burana. Certain works of, of, of music uh, would do that to me and um, going to hear Jimi Hendrix live, you know, I mean, I... And so I was pursuing this and, and exploring um, different traditions and that used sound and many of them focused on the vocal aspect of it. Many of the ancient traditions focused on the vocal aspect. And even though my dad had been a professional opera singer, I had some fifth chakra trauma. <laughs> you know, I would hear recordings of myself singing I, on a cassette player and I go, ah, I don't like that sound, you know, so there's some some getting getting a better relationship with my voice was very important and and taking it off of the stage and out of the realm of performance. And I guess I one of the things I want to say is that I um anything that I do with other people, anything that I have come to the point of sharing, either in performance, recording or teaching, initially started as my own search, my own practices. 
and and I, I we had a little newspaper, a little alternative newspaper in Woodstock in 1974, and I was asked by the editor who knew me to write a piece, and I, I just, I, it's, well, music, sound and music, a sadhana from 1974. Sadhana is your spiritual practice. And I was um, trying to find what were the roots in all, you know, what was the, the transcultural that, that was global? What, what was it that connected us all? There was no world music. That term hadn't come for quite, quite a while, but I was listening to Tibetan Buddhist um, deep voice singing. I was listening to gamelan music from Indonesia. I wanted to, and all of these touched a different part of me. I was trying, like, what's the connective thread? What What is the unifying principle amongst all of them? Um, I still don't, can't give a coherent answer to that, a one sentence answer, but there's something there that, uh, um, it's, it's a deeply touching and evocative experience that people have with sound. It, it, it is said that it is the first organ that a sense perception that develops in the womb, right? That the fetus is actually shaped like an ear, <laughs> right? And, and um, there's no light in the womb, right? There's, we can't see anything, it's totally dark, but there is sound. And we hear the sound of, um, you know, whoosh, whoosh, which is the sound of mother's breathing. And some say that's why the sound of the ocean is so calming, because it's very similar. The surf coming in and out is like the breath. And we hear boom, 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 and mother's heartbeat. And um, these little high-pitched sounds that, you know, um, just to stand up for a second here and do this. Those kind of sounds that we've we've discovered now how to make with gongs using are sounds like dolphins and whales, and they're also like Jonathan Goldman. I think have you interviewed Jonathan yet? All right. Well, he was one of the forerunners in this movement. He had Sound Healers Association. He released some recordings that had those ocean sounds and and drums heartbeat drum and these sounds and and i think it was he who was writing early on uh, might have been don campbell one of those guys about these are the way this is the way the infant in the womb perceives the sound of mother's voice it's very high pitched and distant can't really make out words but you hear this Fascinating stuff. So, so these are we're we're hardwired with these sounds from early, early on, and um, they are very evocative for us. So, in and I, I realize this is a long answer to a short question, but I think it's you know it's relevant because you know my friend uh, Dr. Louis Mel Madrona, who's not involved with sound, but is a uh, a psychiatrist who works a lot with hypnosis and with story and he's been a mentor and a friend of mine and we've taught together for years he's written a number of books and he said said honoring those who formed us so that's very important i always 
if you go to traditional healers, they will always have a list of acknowledgments of, you know, I'm indebted to this teacher and that teacher and that teacher. So, you know, in 19, I would name my dad, first of all, you know, for inspiring me with a love of sound. And, and although he did have his, uh, his biases, I remember playing, you know, Bob Dylan came on the car radio. I was like, Dad, listen to this. And he said, that's not singing. <laughs> so there's a certain, you know, criteria that was being applied that, uh, but in the early 70s, uh, after I had these experiences, and I wrote right around the time I wrote this article, um, a gentleman named Carl Berger, Dr. Carl Hans Berger and his wife Ingrid moved to Woodstock. And they had started a school in New York City with uh, the help of Ornette Coleman. And uh, it was the Creative Music Studio. And their idea, they were, Carl is, they're both still going, they're in their 80s, but Carl was an award-winning downbeat uh, jazz musician on vibraphone who had played with Don Cherry and top players and a music educator. And he had this, they had this idea of, Again, I'm like, okay, now I've found it. This is what I was looking for, of teaching universal tuning and universal timing. In other words, they wanted to bring in musicians from Turkey and from Africa and from and jazz musicians and show these are the this is the the stuff that connects. If you look underneath the rug, these are the threads that connect all the different patterns you're seeing that transcend culture. And so that was that was a tremendous school for me because I never went to music school. I was an autodidact. I, I found friends to teach me stuff on the guitar. The other thing I, I forgot to mention was that at 13, a, uh, I grew up um, not really practicing, but um, kind of secular Jewish. And at the age of 13, a young man is bar mitzvah, which is a rite of passage. And what I had asked my parents for as my uh, present, my big present was a kunga drum. So I had a kunga drum. And, and as I was going through teenage angst in my room and not wanting to do my homework with the door closed, I would either be playing my kunga drum or playing for hours on my guitar. And I remember my dad at one point saying, it's fine. Pete, if you want to do that stuff, that, that's fine, but don't ever think that you're going to support yourself doing it. You know, there was a real mixed message there, like the pursuit of music is fine, but you got to find something else to do. So anyway, I still love percussion. I've always loved percussion, and I always loved getting together with friends and drumming, drum circles and, and, and little drum sanghas and percussion sanghas. And I have a large collection of uh, rattles and drums and shakers. And um, I, uh, I like having a, like a, a repertoire or an array of different things that I can use. And um, uh, so that then takes us into the late 70s and I was playing my guitar and trying to make it sound like a sitar using open tunings for, for the sympathetic strings and listening to what John McLaughlin was doing and being just in awe of that. And I moved to live in Holland for three years 
1978, I moved to uh, Amsterdam, and I, I'm, there was an expatriate jazz pianist living there, uh, who, uh, Burton Green, and Burton Green was, I, I, I was referred to him to look him up, and we hung out, and he said, you have to come and hear this group I'm playing with, the East-West Trio, and it was him and a bongo player from Suriname, and this extraordinary sitarist from India. And I, I just was absolutely, there are moments when there's this sense of manifest destiny unfolding. And I was like, I need to meet this man and I need to get some teaching from him. So I went, I, <clears throat> his name is Ustad Jamaluddin Bartia. He was Ravi Shankar's first and oldest student. He was in that garana, in that lineage, and he had a school there in Amsterdam of, of North Indian classical music. And I went and he kind of grudgingly accepted me as a student. Uh, we went through a little dance back and forth where um, I said, I'd like to learn raga scales on the guitar. And I played a little bit on the guitar, what I was doing. And he said, well, you have some good musical ability, but I can't really teach you on that instrument. You're going to have to learn on sitar. So there's, um, you're probably familiar with Zen mind, beginner's mind. So that was good for me because there, I, I was stripped of my, whatever, 15 years of playing guitar before that. And there I was a complete beginner. And even though it was a stringed instrument with frets, it was very different. So, you know, I spent like six months learning to hold it. <laughs> and, and another six months learning just to play scales. And then I learned my first. And he also, he sat with me and he said, listen, if I teach you, you must promise that you will practice for three hours every day. And I said, well, you know, I, I, I can't really do that. I have a full-time job and two small children. And uh, he said, all right, then two hours a day. And uh, I was still wiggling off the hook. And I said, I would like to say, yes, some days I might be able to, but I don't think I can make that promise for every day. And he very sternly looked at me and he said, one hour a day, absolute minimum. Otherwise it will be a waste of your time and mine. So there's this tradition it's not like here where you go and open the newspaper and you look for an ad for a good, you know, a piano teacher or voice teacher. If he accepted me, as we, we entered into a very ancient and privileged relationship of uh, Guru Chela. I was his student and he took some responsibility and I tried to do everything I could to hang around him and learn from him and driving him to gigs and playing the tambora for him which was a great honor you know and uh, and just for hours playing those same four strings over and over again while this font of creativity was going on several feet from me so that was three out three years i did that and then i moved back to the states and uh, i organized he wanted to come and tour and i organized some tours for him and i also went back to studying again with Creative Music Studio with Carl and I, I uh, also met right around that time in the early 80s another person who was to become a profound teacher of mine whom I saw Katie Down pay homage to which was Pauline Oliveros 
and Pauline had just moved to this area. Uh, she was, there's a Zen monastery, Zen mountain monastery. She was an artist in resident at, and she was do, doing a class at Creative Music Studio. It was one of those moments where I opened up the newspaper and there was a picture of this person. And I was, I thought I need to go meet this person. I didn't know anything about her. There was some recognition um, and I went and we became friends and then uh, I, I was following her around and and uh, she had the deep listening chorus in Kingston, New York, um, which is about 15, 20 minutes from Woodstock. And I, she, she said, asked me to be the chorus master because I was experimenting with a lot of vocal sounds and I'd heard um, Glenn Velez, the wonderful frame drummer. And you know, you know Glenn Velez's work? Yeah. So I'd heard Glenn Velez and also in the process of booking gigs for my um, sitar teacher, I reached out to Steve Gorn. Steve, and Gorn, Steve Gorn has since become a colleague and I've had the honor of performing and recording with him. But at that point, I just knew him as like one of the few Westerners who was held in very high regard by Indian musicians as a master of the Bansurai flute. So uh, Steve was performing with Glenn Velez and Lane Redmond as a trio at that point. And I went to a performance and Glenn was playing the frame drum and I heard this sound and I thought somebody was whistling from off camera from behind a curtain somewhere. I couldn't figure out what the sound was. And it turns out it was Glenn doing um, throat singing or harmonic singing. And uh, again, I was hooked. I was like, I need to find out about this. And how did, how the heck does he do that? And I was off and running and I um, found teachers and I in fact dragged Pauline over to Omega Institute one, one year for a class with Jill Purse, the English lady who was one of the pioneers in bringing um, harmonic singing into the West. And recently, because my days, I'm teaching a lot, but my days as a student still continue. I still keep trying to find people that teach me more. And so most recently, um, I've had the uh, great good fortune of studying with Timothy Hill. And Timothy was, uh, along with David Hikes, the two main forces behind the harmonic choir. And um, he's probably the best harmonic singer that I've ever had the chance to hang with. And he's quite a student of the overtone series. And it's a, it's very meditative. We have small classes of, you know, three, four, five people in somebody's living room. And, and of course, more recently, there's been concern with COVID protocols because you can't really sing with a mask on. <laughs> so we, we, it was not going on for a while, but we've, we've resumed again. And, and uh, so exploring that. And one of the uh, podcasts that I watched was uh, Nestor whom I, I didn't know of him, but uh, I liked a lot of what he had to say. And, and so this, uh, you know, these are my areas of, of interest. And I, I was like, well, what is it that uh, the, the singing bowls? All right, I'm known as a bowl guy, right? And that, that 
more than anything is probably what pe people say oh you're that guy that you know <laughs> does the singing balls and i i again i see this as a, an extension of fascination with sounds that have long duration sounds that are rich in harmonics and in overtones and percussion because it is percussion and as far as i can tell anything like this i'm just going to tilt my anything like that which is a you know a small selection of singing bowls i have a client coming over in a couple hours who's coming for a, a little sound healing session so i've got about 40 bowls and i just grabbed out you know like the old song says these are a few of my favorite bowls so you know i have a few and but that again you know um where did it come from um, uh, i i heard a recording in the 70s of um nancy hennings and henry wolf uh tibetan bells and i what, what are those sounds and i just was very curious you couldn't you couldn't find in these they weren't around and slowly slowly through the diaspora of the tibetan people and uh, them uh, they started appearing more and more in tibetan shops uh ex import shops and uh, um, a fellow uh named dirk gillibel arrived in in woodstock and i want to say the 80s and he had studied with a fellow he's belgian and he had studied with a hungarian shaman named yuska sos and yuska used the bowls and dirk had a collection of bowls and i went to a couple meditations he was giving where people would lay on their backs and he would play singing bowls and uh also right around that time uh I met Don Conroe, the gong master who came through Woodstock and did some gonging. And uh, I began slowly, I got my first bowl. And then I, 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 have, was, I, was, I developed a bowl Jones and I could not stop. I just had to get more and more and more. And, and I was playing them for myself. And then someone said, well, you could do what Dirk is doing. You're a musician. You could. And I very timidly invited a handful of about, I don't know, a dozen friends to a small gathering. And I played the bowls just like I had been playing them in my living room. And my friend, uh, Burl, um, who was a uh, filmmaker who made the Women in Jazz series, award-winning videographer, on PBS and he just passed a, a month ago, Burl Crone came up to me and he said, that's the closest I've ever seen you in your essence. So that was a hint, you know, that it's like, follow the breadcrumbs. You're on the right track, you're on the right trail. And, uh, you know, I was just doing this for myself and my friends and um, I played them uh, for my my partner who was having some health issues and she said it made her feel better you know I mean physically not just emotionally and mentally but it physically seemed to have some so I'm very you know I it's a very touchy subject 
and phrase sound healing. You have the Sounds Heal podcast. My website is Sounds for Healing. But still, who's what is going on? Who's doing the healing? You know, um, Benjamin Franklin said, God heals, the physician entertains and collects the fee. <laughs> so, you know, whether you believe in it's coming from a divine source or or from the inner physician, you know, in a sense, maybe all healing is self-healing. What we can do is create the conditions that are conducive to it, to create an environment where people feel some change is possible, some grace can enter into the room, can can be uh, experienced. Um, it's very mysterious. Even the scientists don't really know, you know. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I was doing this stuff, and 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 my my friend uh, said, "I want you to meet this." Uh, my friend um, Lawrence Rockefeller, and uh, <laughs> he was, you know, one of the probably half dozen richest men in the world, who was the black sheep of the Rockefeller family. He funded crop circle conferences. He gave uh, big donations to the Foundation for Shamanic Studies, Michael Horner's group. Um, uh, Joan Halifax. Um, he hung out with with Ramdas. Uh, he he was you know he was a very inquisitive um, and and charming man. And she said, "I I want Lawrence to experience what you're doing." And I was, you know, uh, that's the expression in for a penny, in for a pound. You know, is why not? I'm doing this for. I hadn't really started doing much with it, but it was something that I had a fascination with. I know that these sounds affected me more profoundly than just about anything else. I love singing, uh, overtone singing. I love drumming. I love playing the tambora. But the, the bowls just had something else going on for them that... Um, see like this is one of the first bowls and I know the zoom audio interface is not great but this is one of the first bowls that I got and it's still one of my favorites and it just has a people are looking for bowls they'll say what should I look for I say well ease of playing um, and purity of tone I mean and duration a good bowl you know when you you, you strike a, a good bowl it will ring for a long 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 time um, so anyway, uh, I did a session for Lawrence Rockefeller. Here's this, you know, 85-year-old billionaire laying on cushions and I'm playing the balls around him. And he got it. 
and he sat up and he said, these are healing sounds. These are sounds that people in hospitals who are waiting for surgery or a post-surgery should be able to hear. I said, yeah, sure, sounds good to me, why not? And uh, then uh, my friend said to me, read between the lines. This man is a huge philanthropist. He's given you the nod. So I very kind of cautiously wrote an, a note to him. Thank you for, I'm so glad that you appreciated them and I have some ideas for making some recordings and, and maybe writing a book. And, and uh, I don't know if you can help me, but I know that you've been generous to other people. And, and that became, that he then became my, uh, what every artist dreams of. I got a patron. This was in 1997. And uh, his, through his generosity, I was able to go into a recording studio and record four. I was going to record one, and my friend who I hired as a musician I used to perform with, Mark Black, we, we played, we had a, a trio called Older, Older Than Dirt. <laughs> but we kind of did like folk uh, space music. And uh, Mark was a creative guy and had been, had a lot of experience in recording studios. And I said, would you help me? Would you produce this? And he said, Pete, why are you doing one? You got so much stuff to offer and you're a hypnotherapist and you could bring that in and you could do some spoken inductions with the sounds in the back. So I ended up doing, giving birth to uh, quadruplets and I, I put out four CDs. It took me two years to record them and, and find the right microphones and the right engineers who were understood. I said, these sounds have like the lowest and the highest frequencies. You have to be able to get the full range. And, um, and Mark encouraged me, he said, well, you do drumming. Why don't you bring in some drummers, do some percussion, do some chanting, do some, so that it grew and grew. And because I had, you know, funding, I was like, why not? Why not? And, uh, you know, my friend who had introduced me <laughs> to Lawrence said, this could be your one sh best shot this, this lifetime. Don't F it up. <laughs> so anyway, I took my time and I, I put out those four CDs. And then um, he called me in and to Rockefeller Plaza and he said, well, okay, now how are you going to market these? I had no idea. I was like, I, I don't know. You know, I mean, I just, I'm the artist. <laughs> but he was saying, no, you know, if you're going to do this, he was very good advice. You have to figure out, come up with a plan. So I got a, a website up. And that was my first website. And uh, it was called en Entrance Ways, which I thought was very clever. And, and then uh, I, I didn't renew it and somebody stole it. So I had to come up with another name, which is actually a better name, because Entranceways is very clever, but people don't really understand what that means. And so I did Sounds for Healing, which is more, oh, Sounds for Healing. And uh, so I guess what I, I uh, had not mentioned in this retrospective is that the main way that I've been earning a living uh, since 
uh, I don't know when. It's been a long time <laughs> since, since you know, 1987 or 88. Is I got trained as a hypnotherapist. And I have a practice in medical and clinical and Ericksonian and neo-Ericksonian hypnosis. So for me, there was a great fascination in the overlap is what happens to people? What happens when people are hearing these sounds and how is it related to what happens to people when I'm speaking to them and they go into an altered state? They both share this. I'm talking a lot. Do you have any questions? Well, that what, you know, getting into hypnosis, of course, which is your, has been your full time, your, your main field. And, yeah. and did I just read that you've been inducted into a Hall of Fame for hypnotherapy? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So the, I mean, this is you know we've you've expressed all these these amazing uh, experiences and exploration of sound, but I think they do really. You know what we used to say in New York correlate. with that with that and a token you can get on the subway. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's nice to be honored by your by by your peers in the field yes and, yeah. and say you know this is you made a significant contribution and that was you know my my uh chosen field um and i entered that that field in in you know um the late 80s and and became uh you know trained in hypnosis and um so I was always like looking at this through binoculars. You know, one lens is like, here's this powerful effect on the psyche, uh, on, on uh, sounds for, for healing, you know, that was, and here's how people engage in hypnotic practices dating back to Mesmer and before that, to go into, into an altered state for purposes of creativity, uh, healing, uh, accessing parts of themselves that are not normally accessed. So I was sort of, it was sort of inevitable that it would lead eventually to this, which is, you know, my, my little contribution here, transonics. Transonics, yeah. The vital link between sound healing and hypnosis, because I just thought I have a fair amount of experience in both of those and seeing the, the overlap and trying to, you know, it's, it's like, let me explain to the hypnotists, many of whom don't know about sound and music, about the powerful healing and consciousness altering effects of sound. And let me explain to the sound healers and musicians, this is nothing new. <laughs> you know, Mesmer used, used sound. I mean, the, 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 the use of sound induces a hypnotic state, a trance state. You know, there's, there's a trance dancing in, in Bali, you know, and, and in Africa. And there are many, many ancient traditions of using sound and music to go into an altered state. So, you know, this is my uh, sort of what can I contribute uh, that's unique. Uh, there's nothing new under the sun. I think King Solomon said that. But 
I at least feel like this is sort of, I have a, a fair amount of experience in these two areas for decades. And I'm very, I, you know, the, the, um, by following our own fascinations, that's what leads to illumination, right? So it, it's not because someone told me about this, it's just, I've always, you know, I, I, I used to say, I thought Gerald McBoing Boing was one of my spirit guides. Do you, do you know Gerald McBoing Boing? He maybe was before your time. He was a cartoon character that would come on before movies in like the, the early 50s. And, and he didn't speak, he just made sounds. So, you know, sound, uh, uh, growing up, uh, you know, with a father who was an operatic baritone, uh, sound, voice was God in my family growing up. So there's, uh, you know, this respect for uh, what what is that um, uh, that affects us so deeply? right in in every culture throughout history so you know through all your explorations and all these really amazing adventures that have led you through this path of exploration and continued learning um now looking at the the field of sound healing now it's so it's really blossomed um what do you think is most important right now for people that are curious about this field um, to be mindful of, to be aware of. Uh, so my dad, who was an inspiration to me because he was an opera singer. And so that was, you know, that was a very important aspect growing up in a, a home where music was so important. And he had a little note by his desk where he worked that said all, it was a quote from someone, I don't know who, all true knowledge comes from direct experience. And I know that as this field, I've seen this field blossom and bloom, there are a lot of overnight experts and a lot of people who go and they take a weekend seminar and the next week they're teaching something. And I was, you know, it's fine to be enthusiastic, but it, if you look traditionally, there was a period of like 40 years of apprenticeship for a bard before they were, you know, my, my Indian music teacher, who, um, whom, from whom I learned, you know, sitar in 1978, he said, you know, there is a commitment here that uh, you, it's not like in the West where you open the newspaper and you see, uh, look for an ad for piano teacher or guitar teacher. If I agree to take you on as my student, you know, I, I'm, I'm, making a commitment to you and you need to make a commitment to the to the music and you know he said are you are you willing to practice you you have to promise that you'll practice for three hours a day right so really that and people, i people getting I, into this field they need to make a commitment right you can't make, just be a weekend expert right make a commitment and and, and 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 you know everything that i teach are things that I initially pursued out of my own curiosity. I wasn't looking to become a sound healer or, or you know, I was just like driven by, <clears throat> wow, 
Why does that sound affect me the way that it does? What is it about African drumming that moves me? I've never, I've never been to Africa. What is it about Tibetan overtone singing? What, what are the connecting threads? So <clears throat> they say the pursuit of one's destiny it unfolds in following one's passion. So uh, as I, I just was following these things because they were like fascinating to me. What, what, why does sound affect me this way? Why do certain sounds affect me more than other sounds? Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I would encourage everyone to, to take their time, enjoy listening to music and sounds from all over. You know, I mean, people will go now and they will take a, a weekend of, uh, you know, uh, crystal balls or tuning forks and the next week they're teaching it and you know I would just say have a little respect for the maturation process I was I myself was very reluctant to step into the role of teaching for a long time because I said no this is just my stuff this is my sadhana this is my practice I get together with a few friends every week and we sit and we meditate and we groan we groaned to God, and and it was just an exploration of vocal harmonics. You know, I hadn't heard. Uh, I mean, we'd heard some recordings of Tibetan Buddhists chanting, and then a little bit later, some of the Tuvan singing. But I was just following the breadcrumbs. Following. So, this is a. It's a wonderful sadhana. Sadhana is spiritual practice, and everything that came out of that. My my recordings and doing workshops and teaching is wanting to share something that's been so rewarding and so rich for me. Yeah, it's just a beautiful um, combination of, of your passions and everything that you were you were drawn to. And, and I, gosh, that's just what fascinates me so much about this field is everybody's individual journey. And I, I don't think, um, we can can have any doubt that everything led you to what you're doing. What everything led you. Everything to did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I'm particularly fascinated, you know, because of my dual career. The the main way that I've generated income since the mid '80s is having a career as a clinical medical hypnotist and being a, an instructor of hypnosis and investigating historically what is the link between trance states and sound. I mean, you, you cannot be involved in the field of sound healing and not be interested in what's going on in consciousness and in the brain, as well as in the body when people are exposed to certain vibrations and why do certain sounds affect us more than certain other, other sounds. So- Right, and is it different for everybody, right? Does everybody resonate? differently or are there are there commonalities i mean that's that's the whole perhaps moral to the story is be well, curious, one, well, you know, be be curious. curious. <laughs> yes yes yeah. and one thing that's been very very um uh reassuring is been the growth of this field because you know when i i was I, when i read hasrat and i khan's book in in 1971 or two 70 and there was there were maybe two or three books out 
on the you know sound mysticism sound healing there was very very little and now it's become uh, much more uh, mainstream and there's a pro and a con to that of course right but overall i would say it's a good thing gosh thank you so much for your time and sharing your your journey of exploration and it's just so exciting to even envision everything you've experienced and and so much that you've shared uh through you know both the sound work and hypnosis and the combination of exploring those two and um, any any last words you want to share with the audience oh um make a joyful noise unto the lord right in the in the uh hebrew wisdom they say god listens when I pray and loves me when I sing. Yeah, beautiful. Okay, thank you so much, Peter. All right, thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Sounds Heal Podcast, sponsored by the Ohm Shop and Spa. And keep up to date with what's coming up next at soundshealstudio.com check things out on Facebook at Sounds Heal Studio, and you can listen to all previous podcasts as well as music meditations on the YouTube channel at Sounds Heal Studio. Be well and stay tuned. <laughs>